Hey, good morning. How are we doing, everybody? Good to see you. Hey, uh, I want to welcome uh, all of our guests and first-time visitors across all of our campuses. We are one church gathering in multiple locations, so I want to say hello to our North Campus, uh, downtown, uh, online, west, uh, those of you here at Northwest, really, really good to see you. Our mission as a church is to remove unnecessary barriers that keep people from Jesus, and the reason why we say that so often is because mission and vision have a tendency to leak. We have a tendency to forget and forget why we exist. And so we say it a lot. And the reason why we say it the way we say it is because Jesus is the only one who can change anyone. And we want to get as many people to Jesus, let him do what only he can. And then from that point forward, really help you to grow. And the key word there is help. Nobody can do your growth for you, but we can show you the way and give you some tools and cheer you on and Largely, that's the heart behind Growth Track, is it's a tool to help you take your next step in growth. It's not a perfect tool, it's just a tool, and there's four weeks of Growth Track. They happen right after the service at all of our campuses. You do not have to take them in any particular order. Uh, we'd love to see you there, and really, we're just trying to help you take your next step, because here's the point of our um, growth, or another word for that is discipleship, is to then help other people uh, get to Jesus as well. That's the whole heart behind all of that. So I'd encourage you to check it out. Uh, if you have a Bible or a device right now with the Bible on it, go ahead and turn to Romans 8. We're going to pick this up in verse 5. If you missed it last week, we started a four-part series of messages on one of my favorite chapters and one of my favorite books of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. And if you were here last week, I just encouraged our whole church family to be reading Romans 5 through 8 every day during uh, the course of this series. And it's been really cool because I've had a number of you reach out to me, whether you texted me or DM'd me on social media or whatever. Uh, just a bunch of you like saying, hey, I've, I've been reading Romans 5 through 8. My favorite one is a guy sent me a, a, a link to an audio file of Johnny Cash reading Romans 8, which is just awesome in all kinds of ways. Um, but a number of you have said, hey, this is the first time I've ever read Romans 5 through 8. Or this is uh, the first time in a long time that I've read it. And it's so, here's the word that I've just been hearing over and over again. It's so clear. Like what Paul's writing here is like really deep stuff. Like it's really substantial. Um, but it's clear at the same time in the sense that you read it and you are able to kind of get your head around it. And I said this last week that, that Romans is just Paul at his best. You know, he's got a solid 10 hours of sleep. He's got his coffee in him. You know, he's in a good mood, and he's really at his best, and he communicates some things that are so clear and so life-changing. And Romans chapter 8 is kind of the pinnacle of that, and I want you to just remember this, kind of tuck this into your back pocket, that he begins Romans 8 with, uh, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Here's how he ends it. He says there is no separation from the love of God. That is revealed in Jesus. So he starts with there is no condemnation. He ends with there is no separation. Man, that's just good. All right. I mean, this is just Paul at his absolute best. Thank you, three people that got that started. Um, and so uh, here's where I want to go today as we look at chapter or verse five. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the first four verses and we said that there's these two things that are like at war inside of each one of us, whether you realize it, whether you recognize that what that's going on, or whether you even call it by these names, because I realize that maybe not everybody here uh, would say that they're a Christ follower, maybe you're in different places in your spiritual journey, and yet I think all of us would agree to some degree that there's a bit of a battle going on inside of each one of us, and uh, it's this battle over like the, the version of who you are. Have you ever noticed 
that there are different versions of who you are. Uh, not only just maybe in different seasons of life or maybe uh, you were uh, you know, at one time immature and now you're growing in maturity. But even in the course of the same day, um, there, there are times whenever I think to myself, man, uh, I, maybe I have a conversation with someone. Uh, or I um, walk out of a meeting or whatever and I just go, man, that wasn't the best version of me. Like, I just didn't really show up with my best. Like, I had an attitude. I said some things that I, I don't know why I said that, but I said it. Or I thought that, and I don't know why I thought it. I think all of us are kind of tracking with that. We've all kind of know what it's like. It's like more than a bad day. It's like this is just like the worst presentation of who I am. Well, Paul gives uh, names to this. He said, this is the, the power of sin that's at work in our lives. And this is the prompting of the spirit that is in our lives. And so the worst version of me is the one that continues to give in to the power of sin. The best version of me is the one that can... That, begins to listen to and is obedient to the prompting of the Spirit. And at first, maybe that voice of the Spirit doesn't sound all that appealing to you. Maybe it seems a little bit counterintuitive. But after a while, you begin, like the more you listen to the Spirit, the more you begin to develop an ear for His voice. And you begin to trust that actually what He tells you and what He prompts you to do really can be trusted. It's really for your good. And so with that thought, Paul continues on from that in verse 5. And he says, those who are, and he uses this really strong word, he says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature, like think about sinful things, but those who are, and this is another pretty strong word, those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you, if you place your trust in Jesus, if you stepped across that line of faith, even with just the faith of a mustard seed, uh, you uh, are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Now, I want to pick this up in verse 11, because this is... Uh, where the sermon's going to go today. This is so mind-blowing. He says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead. And I don't know about you, but uh, I've never necessarily connected those things for so much of my Christ-following life. Is that he basically said, what gave Jesus the power to walk out of the grave was the Spirit of God. Now, listen, now check this out. He goes, that same exact Spirit lives in you. That's incredible. And I know not all of you are convinced of that yet, uh, but turn to your neighbor and go, whoa, right? Can, we, can you give it a good Joey Lawrence? Whoa, right? Like, <laughs> most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Google it. All right, so um, that's incredible. He says the same spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead, like lives in you right now. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit. He says it again, living within you. He really wants us to know that. That spirit of God is living within you. And we underestimate the Holy Spirit all the time. 
And I don't know, many of you maybe didn't grow up in a church background at all. Maybe some of you did have a church background. But the, and I don't know what your church tradition or experience was, especially as it relates to the Holy Spirit, like what they modeled for you in that, what they taught you in that. Uh, I grew up in a church tradition. It was really, really solid, but we didn't really emphasize the Holy Spirit that much. And I know a number of you grew up in that kind of very similar church tradition as well. We just didn't quite fully know what to do with them. In fact, our understanding of the Trinity was God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Bible. And it was like we didn't really know what to do with the Holy Spirit. We just sort of like inched him like right off the, the couch. And, and yet there is this, the Holy Spirit is like, um, he says, is really powerful. Now, now please understand this because one of the mistakes that we can make as Christ followers, this is going to sound kind of strange to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. We can make too much of the Holy Spirit in the sense that the Holy Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is always pointing to the Holy Spirit. And so we have to understand that dynamic. And so, but yet at the same time, we underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. And for so long, like I, I understood like God the Father. Like I can get my head around that. God the Son, get my head around that. The Holy Spirit, I'm just like, well, and I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but it's like I just kind of thought, well, the Holy Spirit is sort of like the soft-spoken one of the Trinity. Like he's sort of like sitting in the back seat of my life going, hey, Aaron, could you please not say that four-letter word? But if you want to, that's okay. I mean, it's fine. Like, hey, Aaron, could you like, you know, read your Bible a little bit more? But if you're busy, that's, that's okay too. It's as if like the Holy Spirit was just sort of like kind of weak and just sort of like kind of offering suggestions. And, and here Paul says, no, 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 like we've underestimated the power of the Holy Spirit. Like he's powerful. Like he's there and he's living within you. And I think that for so many of us, like the power of the Holy Spirit is largely untapped in our lives, but it's there. And all you got to do is tap into it. Um, when I was in college, I drove a, a, a Honda Civic that uh, every now and then when I would get in and turn the key, uh, nothing would happen. Like no lights, uh, the engine wouldn't even begin to turn over. It was just dead. And I remember the first time that it happened, I didn't know what was going on. But, you know, we kind of got under the hood. And we ended up finding that there was, I don't even know what it's called, but there was like this wire that was disconnected. And basically it was as simple as taking the wire and reconnecting it, like literally just plugging it in. And then the car would come to life and it would turn over. Well, here's what I opted to do. I opted not to fix it. I opted to just leave it loose and I, 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 I kid you not, I would utilize this uh, if I wanted to uh, give other people the impression that I was a pretty good mechanic. And so, like, I'm not even lying about this. Like, <laughs> I wish I was, but I'm not. All right, so I would, like, go, like, on a date. And, like, before I would, like, go up to the door to pick up the girl, I would, like, pop the hood real quick. I would unplug the car, shut the hood, go get her, come back in, tr- put the key in, turn it, and nothing would happen. And she would kind of give me this concerned look, and I would, I would literally do this. I would go... Well, let me go take a look. And, uh, and I would, this is your pastor, all right? And actually, like, not much has changed, all right? So I would, like, pop the hood, and I would kind of get it. And the key to this, fellas, is you don't fix it too fast because she'll pick up on it. So you, you kind of rattle around there, kind of shake the car a little bit, and then you're going to, hey, try it now. Nothing, nothing. All right, let me check the flux capacitor, all right? So, and I, and then I finally plug it in after a few minutes, get some grease on my arms and come back. And she's like, wow, like you really know what you're doing. It's like, well, you know, I'm doing what I can. And, and, uh, <laughs> and there have been so many times in my life where I turn the key and nothing happens. 
It's like I'm trying to follow Jesus, nothing happens. Like I'm trying to work on my marriage, nothing happens. I'm, I'm trying to lean into that relationship, nothing, nothing happens. And, and it's like all along there, like the power of the Holy Spirit is there. And Paul's just trying to remind us because I think we need lots of reminding. It's like, hey, he's right there. And all you got to do is you, you, you plug in. And over the last couple of weeks, I've talked about how what, what it requires of us to come to Jesus. And it's as, it's as uh, simple and complex as a step of faith. It's, it's the faith of a mustard seed. All that stuff that I've talked about. And once you get to Jesus then, the Holy Spirit's role in all this is that the Holy Spirit uh, is prompting you. The Holy Spirit is compelling you. He draws you. He convicts you. He convinces you. He seals your salvation afterwards. He speaks to you. He guides you. And here Paul says it. He goes, he even controls you. And I don't know about you, but when we read that passage, this is where some of us maybe pump the brakes a little bit. Because that word control does not have a positive connotation in our society today. Like more times than not, when we're talking about relationships and we say, well, somebody is controlling me, that's a bad thing. Like nobody should control you in a friendship. Nobody should control you in a marriage. So here Paul throws this out and says, you're either dominated by sin or you're controlled by the spirit. And, and if you're anything like me, you're going, is there a third option? Because I don't know if either one of those two like sound great. And, and this is where we have to really understand what controlled means. The idea of controlled is more this idea that the Holy Spirit is, is living within you. Paul's already said that twice in the, in the passage. And now the Holy Spirit is leading you. The Holy Spirit is guiding you. And the Holy Spirit wants what's best for you. In fact, uh, uh, there's even this whole list of what we call like the fruits of following after the Spirit, found in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's where the Holy Spirit's always leading you. And so you can trust it. Uh, several years ago, my, my wife's uh, father um, was getting his uh, glider's license. And if you don't know what a glider is, it's a type of airplane that has no engine. And you might ask, well, why in the world would you ever go up in an airplane without an engine? And that's actually a very valid question. Um, but uh, a glider uh, is connected to another plane by some sort of a rope or a cable, and they pull you up into the air, and then when you get, I don't know, 15, 20,000 feet in the air, you release the rope, and then the glider catches thermal winds uh, because heat rises, and then you glide back down to earth. And uh, my father-in-law had his pilot's license, but he wanted to get his glider's license, and so I went with him. Uh, he got it in Minden, Nevada, which is just on the other side of Lake Tahoe. And uh, at the end of the day, he asked me if I wanted to go up with his instructor uh, for a flight. And I was like, man, I thought you'd never ask. That'd be amazing. And so we get inside this uh, two-seater. It's a cockpit. I'm sitting in the front. The instructor's sitting directly behind me, covered with this, like, glass case. And uh, we're connected to a prop plane via a cable. And so the plane pulls us up into the air. We get uh, up so high. And then the, and the instructor radios to me and he says hey Aaron you see a little lever down below he says pull that and that'll release the cable from the plane I'm like are you sure about this and uh, so I pulls it I pull it and then the, uh, we're just gliding and it's pretty surreal like there's no engine noise there's nothing it's just the sound of the wind and I'm enjoying the ride uh, until the instructor radios to me again and he says hey uh, you want to fly it you want to give it a run and I was like, well, that sounds incredible, but like I've had no lessons whatsoever. I, the only experience I have is Microsoft Flight Simulator on the computer. <laughs> and you should probably know that every single time I play, I crash. All right, so this isn't looking good. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'll, I'll walk you through it. I'll guide you through it. And so he, I, I'm looking at a whole bunch of panels. I couldn't make 
heads or tails of. But he begins to explain to me what I'm looking at. He tells me just enough of what I need to know. Then he, there's a, a joystick in front of me. He says, hey, put your hands on that. There's rudders at my feet. He says, put your feet on the rudders. And then he begins step by step telling me what I need to look at and what I need to do. And I did it. <laughs> he told me to, you know, push a little bit on the right rudder. I pushed a little bit on the right rudder. said, look at that dial. I looked at that dial. told me to, to move the joystick. I moved the joystick. In a sense, he's like controlling my actions, but not against my will. Like at any, at any particular point, I could have just, he could have said, hey, inch the joystick right. And I'm, no, I'm going to bank it to the left, you know, and send us into a barrel roll. And we go screaming to our death. I could have done that. But I was like, no, 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 I, I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm following his lead. I'm listening to him. Here's the thing. At one particular point in the flight, it didn't matter what uh, I did. No matter how closely I tried to follow his directions, it wasn't working out very well. And the plane started to kind of go a little catawampus, and, and the nose was going up in the air. And, I, and every time I tried to try harder to fix it, I just made it worse. And we, get, we got to this place where we were just on the brink, I felt, of just dropping out of the sky. And all of a sudden, I could feel the rudders move underneath my feet. And I felt the joystick move in my hand, and I realized he was actually connected to my controls. <laughs> he was kind of flying it, you know, from behind. The, and all of a sudden, I got this image of being, sitting in my dad's lap, and I was a little kid. Oh, look, I'm driving the car, you know. It's, and, uh, <laughs> but he was in control. This, this is the kind of idea that um, the Holy Spirit wants to control you in the sense that he wants to keep you in flight. He wants to keep your marriage in the air. He wants to keep your finances in the air. He wants to keep your personal growth in the air. It's a very different way of understanding it. And so with this understanding, then Paul gives us the implication. And we know it is the implication because he uses this word. Look at with me at verse 12. He says, therefore. And that's always, whenever you see that in the Bible, it's always turning a corner to application. He says, hey, I've laid down some truth for you. Now here's the application. He says, dear brothers and sisters, notice the affection. Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. And it's sort of an unusual way to kind of phrase that. He, he uses the word obligation here and he says, hey, in a sense, like if you're not listening to the promptings of the Spirit, you are still obligated to your sin nature. And that word obligation uh, carries with it this idea of being in debt to someone. And so whenever you are, are in debt to someone, there is an obligation that comes with it. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I filed my taxes, and I was told by my tax advisor last year, if I set it up this way, you can expect a return. Uh, but I got the email uh, that said I wasn't getting a return, that I was actually owing some money to, to Uncle Sam. And I was having a pretty good day until that email came in. And then all of a sudden, uh, the internal plans that I had for these finances had to be redirected because of this new obligation that I just learned I had. And see, that's what debt does, is it creates obligations. And so I have to adjust my life to what I owe. And that's what the cycle of sin and shame does. That's what the power of sin does in our lives. Whether, and, and I would say that, I don't know that I've ever personally called it that in my own life. You probably haven't either. But what it is, is it's an obligation. So how does this show up? How does the obligation to my sin nature show up in my life? Let me give you the two primary ways it shows up. Here's the first one, is when you and I try to add anything to Jesus. That, is a kind, that creates a sense of obligation. Ephesians 2 says, you're saved by grace through faith, and this isn't from your effort or behavior, but it's the gift of God so that no one can boast. And yet, so much of the time, my human nature causes me to end up spelling the gospel message M-O-R-A-L-I-S-M. 
moralism. And this is most often what I end up seeing in the lives of Christ followers or in, in so many people within the church. And we can tell you what the gospel message is, but it doesn't mean we're really living it. We, we can tell you what grace is, but it doesn't mean we necessarily really believe it because we still kind of are living with this sense of obligation that we still have to do something. And some of you, uh, and I, I know because I've heard from a number of you, will tell me about the legalistic church background that you grew up in and, and how because it was so legalistic and so harsh and so mean-spirited, you walked away. And what you walked away from wasn't the gospel of grace. What you walked away from was moralism. And moralism is taking belief and then adding to it right behavior, whoever defines that, and then we hope that that will equal acceptance from God. And we're always on eggshells, always hoping that we've done enough. It is a type of obligation. And to misunderstand grace puts you and me in the dangerous position where we will now have to assume that any obligation that we have will either keep me secure as a child of God or get me kicked out. And that is such a life-draining way to approach God because you'll never have the settled assurance that God loves you right where you are, as you are. You'll only feel as loved as your last best moment. You'll only feel as valued as your last good feeling or the thing that you accomplished. And all that does is it weakens then your dependency upon the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because you kind of start to think it's all about based upon my actions. And Jesus has done everything sufficient to accomplish your salvation and right standing with God. And what that means is that there are no more obligations. You, you're not obligated to operate out of a feeling of debt towards God. When you do, you strip away all the power of the Spirit in your life. Which might explain right now why maybe some of you have come to Jesus, but it doesn't really feel like anything has changed. I like how uh, author Tim Keller puts it. He says, you cannot add to Christ without inevitably subtracting from Christ. Um, one of the things my wife and I love to do is we love to find like farm-to-table restaurants, kind of local restaurants that are not chains. Any city that we may be traveling in, we'll open up TripAdvisor or Yelp or whatever. We'll just kind of search for it, and we'll go. We'll find those restaurants and... Uh, you know, the kind that where the menu's always changing. It's all based upon the ingredients that the chef can get their hands on. And we just love that. But one of the things I've noticed since we started eating at these restaurants is that there's usually not very many condiments on the table. Like there's often, there's not even like salt and pepper. And uh, if the waiter or the waitress were to come and to present you like your, uh, you know, farm-raised organic pork chop, uh, here's a little tip for you. Don't ask for Heinz 57, all right? Uh, made that mistake, um, they, they would be somewhat offended, right? Like, because the chef has, like, prepared this perfectly. This, it should flavor itself because it's made with fresh ingredients. And so you're not going to drown that bad boy out with, you know, A1 and ketchup. And, and because what, what we, by doing that, you would actually be subtracting from it. So you can't add anything to Jesus, without taking away from the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. Because when you do, in essence, you're saying that his life and his death and his resurrection are insufficient. And so I need to pour my own works and my own effort and my own behavior onto it. And he's already bought your freedom. He's already paid your debt. There's no, there's no more obligation. I said it last week. Jesus didn't go to a cross expecting you to pay him back. Now, let me mention something that you may not clap for. The other way in which we are obligated to our sin nature is when you and I try to subtract anything from obedience. 
And see, that's the second aspect of this. See, we may not be, see, see many of us, maybe we, we got the grace part. We're like, oh man, saved by grace through faith, fantastic. I don't have to bring anything to the table, no effort of my own. Well, here's the question, do you have to do anything? And we oftentimes end up spelling grace this way, R-E-L-A-T-I-V-I-S-M, uh, relativism. And relativism is another form of obligation to our sin nature where we take belief and then we add it with it some good intentions and then we expect that to bring fulfillment regardless of what I do. And this is oftentimes the other end of the pendulum that can swing whenever anyone or maybe an entire society tried moralism or religion and then got burned out by it or burned by it or just got tired of it and I'm not really ready to let go of God entirely, so what we can do is we can emphasize the parts of God that we really love, you know, and it's like, oh man, it's like we rightly declare we're saved by grace through faith alone, but then, and I've been guilty of this, we ignore, we neglect, or we rebel against the spirit of God's intervention in our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit uh, has got a gag around his face and his wrists are zip-tied around his back in the closet of your heart because he's been telling you to obey and you're like, I, I don't want to do that. He, he's been telling you to read Romans 5-8, through 8, well, I, I don't want to do that. And he's been telling you to have that hard conversation, well, I, I don't want to do that because that's really, really scary and the power is there, but we're not tapping into it because the power gets enacted through obedience. You see, in verse 13, Paul says, if through the power of the Spirit, notice this, if you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. There is action in that sentence. Now, please hear me. You don't need to earn anything for your salvation, but that doesn't mean that you don't exert some sort of effort in order to grow. And that might require that you do some things that are a little bit uncomfortable or feel a little bit unnatural or maybe feel a little bit counterintuitive or unpleasant at first. See, the gospel message is not opposed to effort. The gospel message is opposed to earning. And there's a difference between those two things. And, and this is one of the biggest issues that I think that we can get confused or get stuck on. And I can speak from firsthand experience as well as lots and lots of observation is that we give our lives to Jesus and then maybe things didn't initially get better. Maybe things got worse. And my marriage still fell apart and the friendship still ended. And the accusation still came. I still got fired. The lawsuit still happened. The addiction came back bigger and badder than ever. The, the dark clouds of depression still enveloped me. My teenager still hates me. Like, what's going on? Can I just simply ask you to consider this? What has the Spirit of God been prompting you to do that requires some sort of intentional decision or action? And have you done it? See, here's the thing I think that we get hung up on is that sometimes you and I, we don't recognize how the Spirit of God is at work in our lives because we keep wanting Him to change our circumstances and He's trying to change us. And if those two things come into conflict, he'll go with changing you every time. There's so many things that I oftentimes might pray, and most of my, most of my prayers are, God, change my circumstances. Um, 
help me get out of this situation. Solve this for me. And God's like, man, I'm trying to shape you. I'm trying to change you, which might mean that I leave you in the middle of those painful circumstances so that you learn to walk with me through that. So that you learn to develop some character. So that you learn to trust. So that you come out on the other side of it looking a little bit more like Jesus and growing in maturity. Because I can tell you this, is that there are very few things in my life that are worthwhile um, that have just been easy. It's always the hard work. It's always the intentional effort. Man, growing spiritually, like, that's hard work. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying earning salvation is hard work because that's not your work to do. I'm saying growing spiritually, looking more like Jesus, that's hard work. Acknowledging uh, my weaknesses and then exerting the effort to work on it. Man, that, that's hard work. That's uncomfortable. Marriage. Like, I, I don't care how compatible you are. I don't care how good-looking the two of you are. I don't care if you've got, like, you know, pet names for each other, like Pookie Bear and Love Pots. And Love Pots is kind of weird, but uh, go with it if you will, all right, if that works for you, all right? So I don't care, like, if you, you give me a couple. I, I, every now and then I'll hear somebody go, man, they've, they've been married for 30 years, and they're so in love, and they're holding hands, and that's just amazing that they're so compatible. And I guarantee you, you give me a long, tenured marriage where they, they love each other, you, that's two people that have put in some work. That's two people that have invested and, and had the hard conversations. Man, parenting, that requires really hard work. Can I get a good amen from, from exhausted parents? All right? a, that's hard, hard work. That didn't come naturally. Get, getting a rein on my finances and, and because it's a mess right now. And then learning to be generous with it. That's really, really hard work. It requires you to make decisions that are uncomfortable. Refusing to hide my secrets and shame. That's not easy. It's really, really hard work. Spiritual growth always involves being gradually. I can't emphasize that word enough. It's gradual. It's gradual. It's gradual. You may not recognize it in the moment, but you look back and you see how far you came. It's a gradual freeing from the domination of personal sin in my life while simultaneously being more attentive to the leading of the Spirit in my life. And we kill sin through intentional decisions that we make. And it's never easy. So let me just try to break this down as practically as I can get it. This is the primary point of application right here. Two spiritual postures you can have. You can either lay low or you can lean in. And every single one of us listening to this right now falls into one of those two categories. <laughs> Maybe multiple times throughout the day. When it comes to your spiritual growth, you can lay low or you can lean in. And what do I mean by that? Uh, have you ever ha uh, been having a conversation with somebody and you can tell that they're not fully with you? That's not fun, is it? Like you can tell like their eyes are glassed over. They're thinking about something else. They're thinking about lunch. They're thinking about what they want to say whenever you take a pause to take a breath. And they're not really, they're not fully present with you. They're just sort of like conversationally lazy. They're just sort of laying back. But you, can, but you also have those conversations where somebody's like leaning in. And you can tell that they're listening closely and that they're, they're fully present. One of my favorite things in, one of my favorite moments in preaching a message is just the, the posture of you all, like there's different postures throughout the message, and I can tell if maybe I'm losing you, or I can tell if maybe you're taking notes, and I can tell if you're, you know, bored, or, you know, it kind of gives it away when you're laying there like this, right? It's a, it's a, it, but here's one of my favorite postures, is that when I get to that part of the message where all of a sudden I'm connecting to your heart, and then you're leaning in, my favorite posture is a bit of a leaning in, and maybe a mouth a little bit gaped open because you're tracking with what's being said. 
And can I just simply ask you today, are you leaning in or are you laying low? And what areas of your life do you need to lean in right now? What areas of your life do you need to show up and be more fully present? What I know right now is that there are some areas of your life in which God is trying to do some things in you. He's trying to address some parts of you. He doesn't just want to do a work in you. He wants to do a work through you. And the goal of grace isn't just about me. The goal of grace is becoming the version of me that God has always intended that you become. The goal of grace is that he restores you to the person that he always wanted you to be. Because I can tell you this right now, the purpose of your life is to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. And so I think maybe part of the reason why many of us don't want to lean in is uh, because we're afraid of being disqualified from our mistakes. But when we are disqualified from our mistakes, we, we fall back on God's grace and he props us up again to keep going. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you right now. And I just ask that uh, you would show up in the room, that you would be fully present here as we respond to what it is that you've taught us. I pray, God, right now that we could lean in to your spirit and to your direction in our lives. And we trust that you will. We trust that uh, as we seek to obey you, that um, you will uh, show us and guide us and lead us in the direction that you want us to travel. Father, I pray that you'd help us just to show up and lean in right now, be fully present. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.